Hello and welcome to Stetha Show, the only podcast on Spotify that can be grand stained positive. I'm your host, Scotty. I'm, I guess, your co-host, Andrew. And I'm nobody, Alex Belker. Okay, so in this episode, we're going to talk about um, how to take your MCAT, how to apply to medical school, and uh, kind of the interview process. But first, we have our first dissenting opinion. Alex, please tell the public while you're here. So, hi, my name is Alex Belker, and I graduated in May from, or May 2020, for those of you who are not listening to this in 2020, from Transylvania University, which is a very, very small liberal arts school in Lexington, Kentucky, that's actually closer to Rupp Arena than UK is. And when I listened to the last podcast, I immediately texted Scotty and I said, you are incorrect on everything you said about small schools and also Greek life. So I need to come on and set the record straight. I just want to I want to state here that we're not wrong, but um so I I think in the last podcast we we did try to make it as um as clear as possible that we were coming from our point of view and I did try to say that smaller schools more more particularly schools without good opportunities around them are kind of a risky move but it listening back to it i don't think i did a good enough job so alex um is here to talk about her experience i think we mentioned a couple caveats where we're like oh yeah um uh, we know some people who have done this 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 or whatever and it was different for them but we couldn't actually speak from experience on that one so yeah alex is definitely here to set the record straight on like some of the exceptions so Alex, um, we spent the first couple episodes giving our background and what we did in college, what kind of clubs we joined, where we went, not where we went to high school, but what our high school was experiences like. Why don't you tell us, tell us more about your background before you came to medical school? So I grew up in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is right across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And I ended up going to high school in Louisville at a very small all-girls Catholic high school in downtown um, and went there for four years, had a really great high school experience, and then decided to go to Transylvania. Um, And I originally went there because I wanted to run cross-country and track, but being pre-med kind of got in the way of that, and I ended up not running. I ran my first year and then didn't run the last three years. and. Um, I just really liked my experience in a really small school because it allowed me to make personal connections with my professors and my classmates. And I was also a member of a sorority there. And I absolutely loved my experience. I did not have a very stereotypical experience, I think, because my school was so small. And I did not go to like a big SEC school like Scotty and Andrew did. So it was very different. But it was definitely a very positive experience for me, and I got a lot out of it. Okay, so um, so so you said that we're wrong about Greek life and small school. We did try to bandaid over the small school by saying that there is a difference because if you go to a, a small private school in, in Lexington or in Louisville or in a big city, that's obviously very different than going out in the middle of a a, a country county that just has nothing there. And uh, I guess we didn't do that good enough, but um, 
tell us about your Greek life experience because it's a, it's a lot more different than what we understand it to be. Yes. So I joined a sorority more or less to spite my mother. She did not want me to join one. And oh I God. had to, I was a very um, independent and not rebellious, but slightly rebellious child. So I, my, uh, my aunt gave me $40 and I joined. That's how much it costs to rush at Transy. And I rushed and joined my sorority. And it was a very, very great experience. There were only roughly 60 people in my sorority, whereas the chapter of my sorority that's at UK had 200 people-ish. So I was able to know every single person in my sorority and form really, really close connections. And I was also vice president of finance, which taught me a lot of leadership skills uh, and taught me the value of money, which I think I knew at that point, but I was also 19 years old. So it wasn't real until then. Um, um, I also was able to make a lot of great connections. My pre-med advisor at Transy actually went to Transy in the 1980s and started the chapter of my sorority at Transy. And I shadowed a lot of great women who were in my sorority and are now physicians. And not only did I get to learn a lot about being a physician in general, but I got to learn a lot about being a female physician, which is a whole different experience than the male physician. And that was really empowering for me and other pre-meds in my sorority who got to have similar experiences. So it sounded like instead of like um, a bunch of dudes headbutting each other at a party, the Greek life for you was more um, connecting than, than anything else. Yes. While we did party, we were, you know, undergrads in <laughs> Greek life. Yeah. But that wasn't the whole point. And you made a point on the last episode that any community service work, any volunteer hours you did were kind of moot because you were in a sorority. And I don't believe that's the case. I did a lot of community service hours. And I think I only had to do like 10 or 15 a semester for my sorority. And I did a lot more than that just because I wanted to. and. People asked me about it all the time. They understood that it was not due to my sorority. I guess if I had only had 10 or 15, you know, that would be a different story. But you were definitely incorrect on that statement. Well, it's not that they're, it's not that they're moot. It's just that they're kind of given a more skeptical eye than, you know, someone who wasn't in a sorority or fraternity because they know that, if someone wasn't in those, they weren't mandated. So I do want to ask this. It sounds like the hours you did were independent of your Greek life. Do you feel that it, it's, it would be different if the Greek life, like they're like, they organized it, they mandated it, or do you feel that's about the same either way? I used my community service hours that I did for my application also for my Greek life. Mm -hmm. So basically... The way my sorority did it was they sent you a spreadsheet, you put your name, you put your hours. And if you didn't do the correct amount of hours, you had repercussions. But as long as you did them, it was fine. And they didn't mm -hmm. care what you did. Um, 
We also had philanthropy events, which were, we did bingo at my sorority. So we sold tickets to go play bingo. And then we had a bunch of local businesses donate prizes and all that money went to our national philanthropy. And I didn't actually put that in my application, but I could have, but I was not as involved in that as someone who was like philanthropy chair or on philanthropy committee. So I didn't feel like my, I deserved to have that on my application because I didn't work that hard for it. Um, I will say that is one part of the last episode. I kind of wish we can go cut back because it, it is kind of condescending to imply that Greek life volunteering doesn't matter. I think uh, I think maybe the the wavelength we were on was that some fraternities do that for optics, but it's like they organized it. They all have to go out there. You didn't go out and find it yourself. Um, kind of like Animal House, if you ever seen the movie, but. Uh, I said this in the last episode, any volunteering is good volunteering. So I I do want to retract that statement publicly because even um, I it's, it's still volunteering. So I, I wish we could have cut that part out. And every IF's international fraternity, whatever C stands for, I don't remember IFC organization and Panhellenic organization has a national philanthropy. And they all do things for that philanthropy. Um, And that's just part of being in Greek life. Mm. Um, So whether it's Make-A-Wish Foundation, National Arthritis Foundation, Children's Miracle Network Hospitals, St. Jude, all everybody has one. And sometimes what your sorority, what your fraternity does, isn't necessarily what you're passionate about. Mm. So a lot of my sisters, you know, weren't very passionate about Arthritis Foundation which is fine. Uh, So they went and did their extra service hours at the animal shelter because that's what they were passionate about. So I think the sorority, especially mine, which is the experience I'm speaking from, was very good at being like, you know, we have this national philanthropy, but if that's not what you're passionate about, go do something else that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. I I think um, I I really appreciate the points you've made here. I think to wrap up this kind of... um debate secondary debate thing um i i do think it's important to really look into what you want to go into for the listeners if if you're in a a big school like is does this greek life just mostly party or do they do really good things because i'm learning that it's it's different in every college so you really need to take the time to enter like to like review it research it and all those things because while I do appreciate Alex being on here, what we talked about the last episode is our experiences, and it is very different than than what she experienced. So, um, the due diligence is is really on yourself to figure out which one you're looking at. Would Would everyone agree? Yes, because so. even at big schools, it's different. Because mm. what I've heard is UK is very different from U of L Greek life. Yeah. Um. So. While we have while we have you on here for this episode, um, why did you want to become a doctor, Alex? Let's hear your reasonings. So my very long, drawn-out reason that I'm condensing into a very short reason is when I was 15 or 14, I believe, I walked out to get the mail, and there's this man who had OD'd in the park across the street from my house. And he had a bunch of children just like 
sitting there crying over his lifeless body. And I walked over and the, the, his oldest daughter told me what was going on. And I was like, I got to get my mom. I, I cannot help this person. My mom is a nurse. So I ran to my house and got her and I watched her do CPR on this man. And the entire time I was thinking, what if I, in the two minutes it took me to run to my house to get my mom, you know, what if that made the difference? What if, you know, she wasn't able to save him, but if I had started CPR two minutes earlier, he would have been fine. He ended up being completely okay. But that really got me thinking about healthcare. And I started exploring different options in healthcare, whether I wanted to be a nurse, physical therapist, whatever. And I eventually settled on doctor because in that role, not only can you do patient care, which is what drew me to healthcare in the first place, but you can also teach, you can do research, you can do policy, whatever you want to do in the realm of healthcare, you can do as a doctor. So that's why I chose that path over other patient care centered paths. And, um, you know, just, just to wrap this up, what did, what did you major in in college? Because, you know, we've kind of spilled the beans on that too. Yes, I was a neuroscience major with a biology emphasis. So basically I studied the biology of the brain and how neurons work. Mm. And I was a chemistry and history double minor. Wow, that's an impressive resume. Transy's a liberal arts school. You had to take classes that weren't science. Otherwise, you wouldn't have graduated. That's a fair point. Um, Andrew, if you don't have any questions, I think we're going to move on into the main section here. I think you all pretty much hit everything. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned before, this episode is to kind of talk about you've got through college, you're getting through. Now, what are the actual steps to get into medical school? And uh, to start this section, we want to talk about the MCAT. And um, oh, the MCAT. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the, the MCAT. <laughs> Oh my God! Um, so um, we're gonna pretend the audience here doesn't know a thing about it because you know they might not. You know we want high schooler students to to be in our audience and um, some pre meds that maybe didn't have the same opportunities I had. Um, I was very educated on the subject. So the MCAT stands for the Medical College Admissions Test, and it is a doozy. Would you say? Yes, it is a uh, <laughs> when you're when you're coming at it from undergrad, it is a daunting. Uh, I think it's like a seven and a half hour total time uh, mm. exam, and it tries to cover everything that they think that you'll need for uh, medical school curriculum. Mm. Yeah, so the MCATs uh, ran by um, the AAMC or the American um, Association of Medical Colleges. Um, the the most basic way I can explain it is, like Andrew said, it's about seven and a half, eight hours long, um, mostly comprised of the sections such as uh, critical reasoning and reading. Um, you have a psychology section, you have a biology section, and then you have a kind of a chemistry physics section in it. And um, I think you give a very apt description. Yeah, quick, uh, quick caveat to that. The sections tend to bleed together as well. So like the biology isn't completely separate from the chemistry and physics because they have mm. biochemistry in there, you know, so that bleeds over. 
Mm. And then in the cars, there, some of the articles they give you will be like, you know, philosophy or, um, uh, you know, like pop culture or something like that. But they can also give you articles that will relate into uh, some fields like sociology or psychology. Mm-hmm. I think with the with the car section, they made it as not sciencey as possible. Um, I remember on one of my practice MCATs, there was the biggest section of that test was an article on um, paint staining, and it was ridiculous. You had to learn about the certain ways that paint could dry. It it was it was amazing. An but, article um, about paint drying. Yes, uh, it was, yeah. I would have stepped <laughs> out right then and there. Yeah. I'm like I'm done. Yeah, I, I think the biggest section in cars is: can you look at um, some material that you have no idea about and pick out what they want you to know about? Which yeah, yeah, is important, I guess. Um, yeah. So, um, so that's the MCAT. It it costs a lot more money than you think it does. Uh, we pulled up the numbers before we started this show. It costs about $320 to take the exam, or if you are financially um, kind of destitute, there is a waiver you can apply for that reduces the test to $130, um, which is still kind of a lot. If, if you're a college student, you know what living like a college student is like, but um, those are your options for prices. Um, to to add on to like what kind of costs and stuff like that you're facing whenever you think about taking the MCAT, there are uh, preparation courses that can be upwards of like $3,000. Or, or you can just buy the books from someone. But if you, if you want to take the actual course, it can be quite expensive. There are scholarships for those courses, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I got mm-hmm. a scholarship for my course, and I didn't pay anything for it so if you go out and look you can pretty easily find scholarships and not a lot of people apply for them because they don't know that they're there so if that's something that you think will help you study definitely go check it out and some programs offer those as well like uh scotty i i think whenever we did pep 2 uh we were offered like a waiver for uh for some kind of mcat course yeah, right. like fifteen percent off of a three thousand dollar course. Yeah, I think I don't remember. So, so it's a good segue. Is what kind of prep did you guys do for the MCAT? I did Altius test prep, which is mm. pretty new, and it's very rigorous. I got a scholarship through Transy to do it, and it's also very expensive, which is. Um, I couldn't have done that without the scholarship. But basically they give you a six to nine month study plan and it gives you a list of things to do every week. And they didn't care like when you did those things. I did a little bit every day. So I tried to study one to two hours, depending on my class schedule every day for six months leading up to the MCAT. And then in May, Transy has this thing called May term where you don't take classes, you take one class the month of May. So I took PE the month before my MCAT, and I would MPE for two hours in the morning and then studied for five to six hours every day for the month of May. And then I took it the first week of June. My, my MCAT prep was uh, I bought 
the previous year's MCAT books, uh, it was the Kaplan prep books off of, uh, off of a friend of mine and then started reading through them, everything like that, uh, around the time winter break hit for me. And I didn't really have a set study plan, but I would just do however much, uh, I could in a day, depending on how my classes were going once they hit. And then I, I didn't take the traditional route of taking the MCAT in like May or something like that. Whenever, uh, classes have started to let out i took it in april so it was mid semester of uh of my junior year and there's a reason i did that we can talk about that later but i studied for the winter break and then four months leading up to that and hit it as best i could yeah so my study plan was um awful if i could go back and redo it i definitely wouldn't but um I think my plan was I took a lot of classes that were super relevant to the MCAT that semester. So I didn't actually end up having to study for biology at all. And that was by far my highest score. Um, But I didn't do a great job. A lot of personal issues kind of came into my life. And uh, I battled with some mental illness. And I didn't end up studying all that much for it. So I, I can't give you a good guide on how to study for it because I just didn't end up doing that good on it the uh something i have something i didn't mention but the most helpful thing for me as far as the mcat prep i did was uh about a month out from the mcat i i took every saturday leading up to the mcat and i took a practice test because you can get these like bundles of practice tests for i think i paid a hundred maybe two hundred dollars for it i can't remember the exact pricing right now but uh, I woke up every Saturday at around the time I would need to wake up to get to the actual testing center. And then uh, I would do the full seven and a half hour exam and just see what which sections I missed heavily on and which sections I did great on. And I, that would adjust my studying course appropriately. I did something similar, but I did it during that May, the month of May because I only had two hours of class. So I would go to class and then eat lunch. And at noon, I would start my seven-hour exam. And I would end at like 7.30 and then go eat dinner. And then the next day, go through the exam. And I just did that on repeat for the entire month. Yeah, I think um, I was in a program called Future Docs um, that, that gave us some access to, to AAMC exams that were from previous years. I think I took three of those. I would say that even though my MCAT was complete garbage, the the thing that probably helped me the most was learning how to build your stamina through it because you could be the smartest person in the world, but once you're asked to use your brain critically for seven hours, like you're going to get tired. So you need to take at least a few practice exams. And um, other than that, if you guys want to share your MCAT scores, I'll just go ahead and share mine because it was garbage. I got a 500 pretty much on the nose on mine which we didn't mention this but the mcat goes from about 472 to 536 if i'm right there i think you are and it may be hard to get a grasp conceptually of what that actually means but Mm -hmm. it, it goes based on a bell curve so what was he mentioned the lowest score is it's 472 
Yeah, so 472 is basically a zero, you know? You're in, like, the lowest 1% of the nation. And then if you get the highest score possible, uh, you're on, like, the very right end of the bell curve, where you're, like, basically 100%. So 500 is, like, dead average. That's the middle. Yeah. Right smack. Yeah. I think it was, like, complete 50th percentile at that point. But my issue was, like I said, I didn't study as well as I should have. But my saving grace was my biology because I was so interested in it. My pre-tests were like 91st percentile, 95th percentile, 99th. On the actual thing, I got about an 85th, so pretty high up there. Um, But I didn't study the other sections as well as I could have. So if I could have brung like psychology, I was the bottom quarter of the nation. If I could have brought those up... I had a really good score, but eh, stuff happens. Yeah, my practice tests were usually rating me at about an 80th percentile, and uh, but I, I think I took the easier grade of practice tests because there there's some practice tests you can get where it's like people are going to say these are the harder ones, and they're not really representative because you'll get a lower score, and there's the easier ones where they're not exactly representative because you get a higher one. And so it's good to try to mix those. But uh, my MCAT score ended up being a 508, which is uh, 74th percentile. Me too. Hey. Um, uh, but here's here's the thing that I usually, uh, usually try to add in whenever I say I got like a 74th. The reason I took it in uh, in April, I think it was, uh, is because if you look at how the MCAT is scored on this big bell curve, that is a bell curve representative of the group you took it with. Mm. So say, you know, 3,000 people took it on that day in May, you're going to be scored against the 3,000 people that took it. Now, since everyone usually takes it in May, that's some, uh, that's like the biggest bell curve. So you're bound to... Uh, not fluctuate that big. I took it in April because you are on a much smaller bell curve at that point because most people don't do it then. They're in class. They don't want to do it then. So you're either dealing with uh, you're either dealing with people that are out of college and they're they're studying up on it and then they take it and they can either do really good or really bad or you're uh, you're with maniacs like me that decide oh yeah I'm just going to do it during class. I like that you weaponized mathematics here. Yes. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I was employed by the math department, so of course I'm going to weaponize mathematics. I didn't even know you were scored against the people you took the test with, so that shows <laughs> how much I knew. Yeah. So that, that's why I took it in April, and uh, 74th percentile, I recognize, like, oh, I'm, I'm somewhat bright, so of course I should have gotten like a score that was somewhere in this range but i also attribute it to the mathematical benefits i had just by taking it the time i did i want to personally comment on the mcat and say i really did not like that test oh it was awful who who could like it the mcat it sucks it's so bad yeah (laughs) i hated the mcat so much um and there is evidence that it's not really that useful i Mm -hmm. i've heard some schools say that 
they say they have some schools like in some of the lower percentiles. Those students still end up being good because, in my opinion, it doesn't actually doesn't actually matter that much. I it's would like say like the what ACT. You... The ACT doesn't really matter that much either, but you have to take it so you can compare yourself to people around the country because it's standardized. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm. your GPA is different; it's not standardized because you're not taking the same classes as someone in Massachusetts. Or Florida or whatever. But the MCAT, yeah. you're taking the same MCAT across the country. And the way they uh the way they report the scores is also kind of a indicator of just how uh, iffy the MCAT can be as far as representing what you know and whatnot. Because like uh if if I'm pulling up my MCAT scores right now, the total is a five oh eight. However, they report it to the schools as anywhere between a 506 and a 510. Because they're like, oh, on a good day, he could have ranked a 510. On, on a bad day, he could have ranked a 506. Hmm. So, um, uh, med schools do know this thing isn't entirely comprehensive. And there are multiple studies, as Scotty was saying, that show, eh, even if you make, like, you know, a little bit below a 500 on the MCAT, you can still end up being a really good clinician. Yeah. So, you know, even my score was just really bad, but it was just, I had such a bad summer, but like, I think I could have done much better on it, but it, it kind of weighs down on your soul. Cause you think like, Oh crap. Well, they're not very good. They're not going to want me. So actually um, when you're still applying, mm-hmm. That's the most that's the most pressure you'll ever face right there as a pre-med is when your application is submitted and you're waiting. Yeah. I was told um we were in a summer camp. I was one of the RAs and um I I went to one of the 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 people over it who who interviews for the medical school and I was like, "What should I do?" He said, "You have to take it again as soon as you can." And I said, "But I won't get a better score cuz I didn't study for it." And he said, well, then I guess you'll have to go next cycle. So I went this cycle, and I still got in. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad things are the way they were. Yes, and I will say the best advice I got while studying for the MCAT was to take a day or a night or however much time and don't study. One day a week, just don't. Don't study for your classes either. Don't Just rest, relax, do something fun. Your entire life cannot be school. Otherwise, you will be miserable and depressed. So take time for yourself. Don't just study the entire time. And then after you take the MCAT, go do something fun so you forget about the eight-hour test from hell you just took. (laughs) Very important. Very important to do that. You will be brain dead after the MCAT. So don't worry about doing anything afterwards. I went, I drove to ND with my friends and we watched a basketball game and it was so much fun because I was so brain dead. All I had to do was stare at the basketball court and I, as long as I knew how to count by twos and could see the score, I didn't have to do anything else. Yeah, I got, I got home from my MCAT. I, uh, I told my roommate at the time, I was like, all right, I'm going to bed. When I wake up, there best be, like, you know, three or four other of my closest friends here. Like, wake me up when they arrive, and then we'll just <laughs> get up and do whatever the rest of the night. Yeah. Um, yeah, my MCAT, I was pretty similar. 
I was just so happy to have it done with. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that I did like absolute garbage on that exam. Um, so, yeah. So I guess I guess we should transition into talking about the application because the test didn't seem like the worst part of it to me. I don't think. Hmm. So, and uh, so it, it it's called the MCAS. It's known as the American College Application Service. And you have to fill it out for every MD school in the nation. And then there's a different one called a Comus that you fill out for osteopathic medical schools. And, I can't, and that is, I, yeah, none of us are in an osteopathic medical school, so we can't talk about that one too heavily. But it's the American Association of Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine. That's the application yeah. service you can go through there. I never used it. Did any of you guys apply through that? I was early no. decision, so now. Okay. I was earlier student, so, so I did not either. So we no, none of us know about the osteopathic side. Um, I, some of my summer camps were osteopathic. Yeah, just feel we should throw it in there though to cover. Yeah, you know, there's there's another pathway. I will say, I from my understanding, it is roughly kind of the same, except they like they're a little bit more aggressive though. Did you? shadow osteopathic doctors yes so that is the big difference right there yeah and uh, i did but um they they'll ask about that they also want you to have a letter of recommendation from an osteopathic doctor Mm -hmm. specifically yeah yeah uh which i probably could have i probably could have cranked one of those out i knew a few trauma surgeons who were do's so um i guess talking more about the financial side of this um we googled it beforehand it's $170 for one school's application, and I, th- I think if I remember this correctly, you do pay about 40 per school you apply to, and this is, so, so this, this process kind of happens in two parts. You fill out one primary application that gets sent to every medical school you're interested in, and they send you back what's known as a secondary application, of which you have to pay their fee for it, too. If, if I got all that right. Yes. So um, it can get quite expensive. If you're throwing all your eggs into different baskets, um, expect, a, mm-hmm. expect uh, a decent monetary hit, I would. Um, that That's just for like the straight up primary applications. They do send back secondary applications, which we'll talk about, but they charge money for you to submit the secondary applications as well. Yeah. I have a friend that applied for, to 10 medical schools and submitted eight secondaries, and she ended up paying about $1,500 for all of her applications. Sheesh. It's a very expensive process. Yeah, I, um, I think I only sent four applications. I sent one to UK, one to Cincinnati, one to Marshall in West Virginia, and then one to Louisville. Um, I only ended up doing Marshall, Louisville, and Kentucky's secondaries. I don't remember how much I paid. Um, but it was... I would have liked to have that money back. But uh, And then, yeah. So what you do in this application is it, it asks you a variety of questions about your time in college. You have to lay out all your classes you have to fill out a personal statement and then everything you did, whether it was volunteering, the club, you were in a club, you, you kind of lay out your entire mm-hmm. college career for these people. And then they yeah. send it to the medical school. Now, and the primary application is the same 
for every medical school. Mm-hmm. And the secondary applications are specific to that medical yeah. school. Now, uh, when they're when you're trying to like talk about your uh, your extracurriculars and all that, uh, they give you ten spots to do so, uh, and you you fill those out with whatever you think is important, and then they give you, I think, three most important spots. I'll, I'll star that as most important because I'm not sure what they called it. I think it was meaningful experience, and if you check that activity as a meaningful experience, you get more space to elaborate on why this impacted you so heavily. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you complete that. Take a few. So my advice here is to, specifically your personal statement, do this a few months out of you interviewing and uh, applying because it's impactful because I remember... In at least one of my interviews, they quoted me very heavily on what I said in my personal statement. So I'm glad I had time to kind of look through it. I did have the opportunity to have some physicians sort of look at it and say, hey, maybe you need to say this, maybe you see that. So so mine ended up being a pretty good personal statement. So take the time to do that part really well, I would think. Any other comments you guys have on this? Um, I wrote my personal statement in November so that I would have it done before I started studying for the MCAT and I wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, while I was studying, while I was nervous about that, while I was filling out the rest of my application, my personal statement was already done and I didn't have to worry about it. Um, because your personal statement is, it's the same every year. You don't have to wait for people to like send you questions or whatever. So you just write it, have it done, have it out of the way. My, uh, my experience with like submitting personal statements and everything like that was, uh, as soon as I got my, my primary application, that was all, uh, I wrote out personal experiences, volunteer stuff like that, wrote my personal statement on the spot because I was the exact opposite of Alex, where I want to just worry about everything next. I take the MCAT, that's the big step now. And then if I see that the score is good enough for me to apply, then I worry about everything else that comes after. But as soon as I got uh, the MCAT application opens up, I took that, wrote it all out, and then I ran straight home to my family, who is much better at grammar, and uh, could help me like refine these things to be as impactful as possible. I ran straight home to them, and I just would type it up, print it out, hand it to them. They workshop it. They tell me like, "Oh, well, you know, when you said this, what did you really mean?" Help me like flush out the ideas, and then I would reprint it, print it out, um, retype it, print it out, show it to them again. And once they finally were like. This sounds immaculate. And I was like, all right, good, good. We submit it now. Yeah, um, I guess to that, Avail, you don't have much space. And, and this is no, not at a all. medical school's first look into who you are as a person. So really take the time to think about the stories that, and they don't have to be medical related. Mine was, but um, that's by chance. Take time to write about the stories that show them the type of person that you are 
and you don't have very much space to do it. So keep that in mind. Yeah, like one of my friends did her gap year in Disney. She worked with the Disney College program, and that's what she wrote her personal statement about. It was just about how working at Disney was going to make her a good physician. Yeah, I had a few friends that actually did that program. That's really cool. Another another thing I think we should mention with the primary application is the primary application, whenever you're sending it out to these different colleges, this is when you have to decide whether or not you want to do early decision. Now, early decision is whenever you say, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and I'm going to send it to one medical school. And the medical school knows that you're the, uh, the medical school knows that they are the only person you applied to. They're the only school you applied to. And so they know you're completely dedicated to that. And when you do an early admission application, they will ask you certain questions of, you know, why do you think this school is the one for you? Uh, why do you think this school uh, is important for you to attend? What made this your only choice? Stuff like that. Uh, yeah. And, but that's it's the only school you get to apply to. So it's it's an all or nothing bet there. But then you also hear earlier. Yes, you get to hear early. Uh, this this time around, I got to hear uh, October first. That was that was my like I got to hear by date, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of time left in the cycle to apply to other schools if you get rejected. But you do get to know way sooner than anyone else. Yeah, um, I think that was two weeks earlier than I knew because mm-hmm. they. Uh, I did get notified on their first regular date, which was, was was really nice. But yeah, Andrew knew, and I was like, "Well, you know, this this could be pretty bad for me." So I was very nervous that day. I would say. Um, so we're gonna segue into secondaries and then in interviewing. So secondaries. Well, the before, primary is before we interview. Before we go on to the secondary application, I think this would be a, a good time since I talked about our decision to hear about Alex's time with uh, early assurance. Okay, so early assurance is a really cool program that the University of Kentucky has. Uh, the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. They have a Northern Kentucky campus that uh, Scotty and I go to. And then they also have a Western Kentucky campus in Bowling Green. And they both have early assurance programs. And I believe the Lexington campus is starting one if they haven't already. I know, I know Louisville has one as well. So okay. a few medical schools do this. So the one at UK that I was a part of, if you went to a Kentucky undergrad institution um, like EKU, NKU, Georgetown, I went to Transy, they have a certain amount of spots. And you apply for these early assurance spots in your sophomore year of undergrad. And you send out an application. They make sure you hit all the criteria. I don't remember exactly what the criteria were, but I know I had to have certain classes, certain GPA, and a certain ACT score because I hadn't taken the MCAT yet. And I sent all that to UK. They checked the box. They said, yes, she's good to go. You can interview her. So I interviewed with a mix of people from Transy and from UK. And I interviewed, I guess they liked me 
And so they were like, yes, she can be in the early assurance program. So I was given assured admission. It's not the same as early decision because I still had to maintain a certain GPA and I had to get a certain MCAT score, which for the Northern Kentucky campus is a 505 or a 506, depending on where the 60th percentile falls that year. Um, so I got a 508. I was good. I maintained the certain GPA. And when I applied, they were like, cool, here's her secondary. Sent my secondary. They were like, cool. And then I had to interview again. And after I interviewed again, they were like, oh, we still like her. Great. So I was accepted. I got the call on October 1st, which is the early decision date. And that's how I got into medical school. Okay, so the transition here. Um, so I'm interested. What was the interviewing process like through this this program? So the first interview happened when I was a sophomore. And for me, I interviewed with a chemistry professor from Transy. A, don't remember some class that I never took. I think it was in the humanities from Transy. And a admissions person from UK. And I interviewed with them. Um, I don't remember a ton about it, other than the fact that we were sitting in my chemistry professor's office, and I had the two professors from Transy there, and then we were video chatting with the person from UK. And they asked me questions, and I answered them. And for people like my roommate who did the early assurance program through EKU, she had the very similar experience, but instead of transy professors, they were EKU professors. And that's because I was getting transy's spots for this program. She was getting EKU's spots for this program. It's not like UK says, we need 15 people. It's UK saying transy gets to send X amount of people. EKU gets to send X amount of people. NKU gets to send X amount of people. And so we did that. That's how I got into the program. And then to get into the med school, I had to do a interview just like everybody else. So it was the same interview that Scotty, you had because you go to the same program that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I interviewed and then I got in. So one note here is um, you, you do have to have a certain number of letters of recommendation from the school that you attended. I know for UK, it was just um, two of of uh, whatever professors mm -hmm. you got. Was Transy any different than that? I don't know if they were or not. I had a committee letter. I had no. to interview with the med school committee or the mm -hmm. pre-med committee at Transy. And then they wrote me a committee letter. And then I also had a letter of recommendation from my mentor in my sorority. And I had a letter of recommendation from um, my manager at Raising Canes because I worked at Raising Canes all throughout undergrad. I think that was important to note because some schools do have very different processes. UK, you just went out and find people you wanted to write your stuff, mm -hmm. usually a science professor. And then, uh, as she said, Transy had a committee, which is, you know, a group of people that like, can you explain that process a little more? Because I, 
I actually don't know that much about committee letters. So at Transy, and I know EKU is like this. I don't know about other schools. But we had a pre-med committee. And I think it had like 10 or 12 professors on it. And they rotated who did the interviews. So I had I ended up having five professors in a room. And they interviewed me. And it was more like I had had most of these professors. So it was more are you sure you actually want to go to med school? And I was like, yes, Dr. Shuhai, I'm sure I want to go to med school. And then she's like, oh, well, why? (laughs) And then I would tell her. It was very informal. And then at the end, they ranked us. So one is not recommending you for medical school at this time. And then five was outstanding recommendation for medical school. And if you fall, you fall somewhere on there. And that's the kind of letter they wrote. So I got a 4.5 which was in between outstanding recommendation and strongly recommend. So I don't actually know what they wrote, but they wrote me a 4.5 letter of recommendation mm. to medical school. Is how yeah. they explained it to me. Me and Andrew had the, the kind of independent system where you ask mm-hmm. professors, you, you feel like you knew you best. Uh, we never got to know oh. what they wrote. And I was never told what they wrote. So Andrew, had how did that happen for you? Oh man, maybe you felt like you knew <laughs> those professors knew you best. Uh, so for me, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't make very strong connections with any, uh, professors at UK. Uh, there was only one that I felt could have wrote me a really strong recommendation. So my, the professors that I had write mine were, uh, one, I had an anthropology professor that I was taking her class at the moment and, I thought, well, I'm doing really well in here. I'm kind of a gunner in this class. Uh, I feel like I'm doing really well, and she can kind of see who I am. Uh, I'll let her write one of my recommendations since it's not in my major. Mm. And she can say whatever she wants to. Then the second professor, I contacted the head of the uh, biochemistry uh well, head of the chemistry department, but uh, he was he was my biochemistry professor. UK doesn't actually have a biochemistry major. They have a chemistry major that has like a subset of biochemistry. Not really sure how it works, but anyway, I contacted him, and in his class, there was a lot of assignments. He called them activities we had to submit, where... Uh, we took any kind of subject we wanted to that was in the realms of the activity and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do like an interpretive dance that uh, <laughs> is is in the confines of uh, this is how water interacts with a protein or whatever. So very, very expressive activities you'd have us do to illustrate our learning of the subject. And I did really well in his class and I submitted some pieces that were very, uh, very outlandish. So I I contacted him and I'm like, "Hey, do you have uh do you have my work from this class still?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved it." I was like, "All right. Well, uh if you want to look over it again and everything or you want to like meet with me and kind of interview me yourself, I'd more than welcome it, but I I'd like for you to write me a letter of recommendation for medical school." And he goes, "Okay, no problem." So he just looked over all that and then wrote a letter. And then the professor that I felt like knew me best was my uh, my calculus four professor. 
because after having Calc 4 with him, I loved him so much that uh, since I already had a job with the math department, I requested, I was like, hey, anytime this man teaches a class, I want to be his undergraduate assistant. I always want to be within arm's reach of him. So whatever he does, I'm in for the ride. And that's what I would do every year uh, since I had him for Calc 4. Like junior year, uh, senior year, I would always uh, volunteer to be his undergraduate assistant. And mm -hmm. so by the time med school applications rolled around, I said, hey, mind if, uh, mind if you give me a recommendation? He goes, yeah, no problem. So my, my, uh, my recommendations probably weren't the strongest aside from him, but it, it got me in. So Yeah, I think my uh, recommendations, I had um, the undergraduate director of biology, who, who, whom I know very well. I only had two classes with her, one freshman year and one senior year, but um, I would always go into her office, talk to her. My second she was, letter, she was I your think, advisor as well, right? I know she does a lot of advising. Yeah. I didn't really need all that much advising, though, because I think I got it pretty straight from the get-go. Yeah. And then I had um, one physiology professor who was a longtime teacher of the medical school and had just stopped that year, but he was still a part of the uh, committee for admissions in the medical school. And then my last one came from a um, a uh, surgical oncologist who I had spent numerous hours with, and um, I felt like he knew me pretty good, so I asked him. So I had pretty strong letters, I think. I think that mm -hmm. probably helped me get through here. So, so you, um, I have a question really fast. Yeah. So if you don't have a committee letter, do you need two professor letters? I think it's two... And then you can add up to a certain I, number. I had three letters, but one was a committee mm, letter. The way I understood okay. it is you need one from a professor that is of your major. And then you need one from a professor you've had. Doesn't necessarily have to be from your major. And then the third is anyone you feel can best represent you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I only have my committee letter from school. My other two were outside school, mm -hmm. so I was just clarifying my understanding. So you get your application, your primary, your secondary, and your little letters of recommendation. And the last step is is interviewing for a medical school. So I think we'll briefly touch on that right now. Um, well, we did we so, didn't talk about the the secondary yet. We well, we got we got off shot with the the you know, uh, early admission versus early uh, decision, all this other stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, your secondary is mostly um, just questions that the specific school wants you to answer. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to pin them down into a group. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about primaries and secondaries. Your primaries kind of being your, your um, one-stop shop to all the medical schools. And then secondaries are more of, questions they want you to answer most schools don't want you to talk about the secondary so um, we won't make any comments on those but um they they are pretty pretty personal to the school they'll ask you the values that they think are important but um our, i think our last stop on this episode is talking about how our interviews went um so what happens is you say your primary or secondary if a school is interested in you uh, say out of like 2,000 people, they might give 500 an interview. 
So they interview you. They have a certain faculty members interview you to, to see if, if you fit that, how you are in person. So um, I got to say, I think the interviews were my strongest point in this entire convoluted process. What about you guys? Um, I, I feel that uh, my interviews were very unorthodox, but it it was probably like fairly well in, in my application, like probably better than my MCAT score, but less than like my, my community service and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I already knew a lot of the people at the Northern Kentucky campus, which is where I interviewed, because I had already done the early assurance program. So I went in and I was like, hey, I know like four people here. And, and I thought it went really well, but I was also kind of at a little bit of advantage advantage that you all didn't have. Funny you should mention that, um, uh, like not having an advantage. The uh, the the first person that the UK assigned to interview me was uh, Margaret, the the Pep Two director. That uh, me and Scotty actually knew really well, and so Margaret emailed me. Was like, "Hey, I'm your interviewer. Apparently, I had to turn it down because of like ethical issues, but I <laughs> just thought it was funny." I actually didn't know she was still mm-hmm. interviewing at that point, so that's that's funny. Um, my interview, I, I say I got dealt a very mm-hmm. lucky hand because at that point in my life, I was super interested in trauma, surgery, and um, emergency medicine. So my two interviewers were um, one was um, she was kind of the head of a um, college to high school system up here in northern Kentucky, and the other one was an ER doctor. So I did really good with the one woman who was a, um, again, she like ran a, a high school to college program. We talked about it, you know, talk about how uh, my hopes for kind of Appalachia and how something like that could help kids. And then my, my second interview was just me trading horror stories with this former ER physician turned family physician. So oh, that's was, beautiful. I, I, I. I was very comfortable, and it went really well, so that's probably one of the reasons I'm here. Alex, what was your interview? Um, I remember that it was the day that the now M2s took their first anatomy exam, and so they were all very stressed out, and I was talking to mm. one of them, and they were really close to freaking out, and I was like, oh my god, I don't want to do this anymore. But... <laughs> Then um, I talked to Dr. Haste, who is the dean of our campus, and he was like, they're going to do fine. They're freaking out over nothing. And he really put me at ease. And I was like, "Okay, I can do this. And so I went in. I don't remember who I interviewed with, honestly, but I think it went well. I mean, I'm here. But it's honestly kind of a blur. I don't remember most of it. Yeah, and we, we've talked so much about the finance uh, issues that kind of happen with the MCAT and the application. Interviews can have their own kind of financial costs. Like, I remember I had to go buy a personal suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Men's Warehouse, if you're ever listening to this, I will never forgive <laughs> you for what you did to me. I had I had one of them tell me that I could pull off a classic suit look. I said, no. I don't like how long those pants can get. He didn't listen to me. I looked a little bit ridiculous. Uh, so men's warehouse, um, never contact me again, please. 
But yeah, so you have dress fees, which it's 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 not expensive to look good. Uh, you can find ways to to pull off a good dress place, but if you're gonna if you apply somewhere across the country, you're gonna have to account Travel fees, for those fees, lodging fees, all that good stuff. I will say, J.C. Penney yeah. on Black Friday, great suits, really low price. That's how I got mine. That's where I got mine as well. Uh, men's warehouse. Uh, no, never again. <laughs> yeah, my my uh, my interview experience was uh, kind of unorthodox. I feel though uh, so they did kind of pair me with the correct people. Uh, kind of like you, Scotty, where one of your one of your people was uh, an ER doc. Uh, the two people I was interviewed by was one was an engineer, which made sense because I took a lot of math based classes and all this and that, which kind of it put me more on the engineering side of things than most medical students I feel get. And then uh, the other interviewer was a pediatrician which at the time I was really heavily invested in MedPeds and I'd done a lot of charity with, um, uh, you know, like kid focused organizations. But the, some of the, uh, some of the things I got during the interview were, were just wild because most of the interview I felt I was doing fine. And then one of my interviewers, uh, the engineer, whenever I talked about me being like a calculus tutor and all this, he was like, Oh, Cool, you're a calculus tutor? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd done it for this many years, and like I, I, I read the books and everything. And he's like, oh, well, uh, do this. And he, he flipped over his paper and wrote down an integral on the spot. And was like, hey, uh, what's the answer to this? And then uh, another interview thing I was asked was, uh, after the interview was done and we were feeling just fine about each other, he just kind of leaned back. He's like, all right, last question. Uh, tell me a joke. Make me laugh. So, you know, they, they they can throw stuff in there that will just absolutely throw you. Yeah, and uh, some interview processes across medical schools are pretty different. Like, I've heard that you, just like you could have a committee write your letters of rec, you can just have a committee mm-hmm. interview you. You can. It, and there's also Cincinnati's interviewing process where they just give you scenarios. You, you get like a mm-hmm. minute outside the room to read over whatever scenario it is. They're going to have you act out and then you go into a room and you just got to act like the physician in that scenario. Which I think is unnecessarily cruel. But uh, a good point here is that we all go to the same college of medicine. So we only really have experience at at this at this one. So, but there are different interviewing styles. The best thing you could do is before you get there, look up what yes. yours might be because that'll, you know, if I had to give a scenario, I I would probably feel comfortable because I'm I'm good at thinking on my feet. But uh, I knew it wasn't going to be like that, so I didn't mm-hmm. practice like that. One resource is you... Student Doctor Network. If you go on there mm. and you look at the school that you want to, um, that you're applying to, you're interviewing at, they have past students on there that can like answer your questions and look at stuff like that. It was very helpful while I was applying. Okay, so um, we're going to wrap up the podcast here as always. If you have questions, you can reach us at stethoshowpodcast at gmail.com. We welcome any questions 
Um, if anything we made wasn't clear here, because it, it's kind of a messy process. We understand that. We realize that you know we have to go back and forth, talk about some of the things that we might have missed. Please email us. We can always clarify things. Um, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day.